0: Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Gillery. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. I'm not going to say too much for an introduction today. Um, it's because this week's podcast is part of my career retrospective series, where I interview a prominent historian of Eurasia about their career. I've done past interviews of this sort with Arch Getty, Alexander Wabinovich, and Sheila Fitzpatrick. I'll put links to those interviews on the podcast website. Today's is with Lynn Viola on her career studying collectivization, resistance, and perpetrators in the Soviet Union. Lynn Viola is a professor of history at the University of Toronto specializing in the political and social history of 20th-century Russia. Her books include The Best Sons of the Fatherland, Workers in the Vanguard of Soviet Collectivization, Peasant Rebels Under Stalin, Collectivization and the Culture of Peasant Resistance, The War Against the Peasantry, 1927-1930, and The Unknown Gulag, The Lost World of Stalin's Special Settlements, among other edited volumes, document collections, and articles. Her most recent book is Stalinist Perpetrators on Trial, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Lynn Viola. So you've had a a really long career uh, writing about Soviet history, writing about collectivization, and now you're turning to the terror. And so I thought I'd start our conversation by just having you talk a bit about you know, what initially attracted you to studying Soviet history and how have your interests changed throughout the years?
1: Well, initially I was attracted to Soviet history um, through literature. Actually, it wasn't Soviet history at all. I was interested in the Muscovite period and Imperial Russia. Uh, But in high school, I, I had a very good teacher who introduced me to Dostoevsky. And so I suppose Dostoevsky is to blame. Um, But I started to read a lot of Russian literature and then listen to Russian opera. And uh, my first major was actually psychology because I decided I'll never learn the language. And so it was only as I began to uh, actually study the language that I thought, well, maybe there's something here. Um, and as I said, I first wanted to study Muscovy, but I was at Barnard College when Sheila Fitzpatrick was at Columbia, so my interests changed. Uh, she was very dynamic, and um, you know, I, I just thought there was a lot more that could be done in that period than in the earlier periods. Um, in terms of how my interests have changed through the years, um, you know, my main interest when I started was to look at workers. I was at the tail end of uh, the whole generation that did labor history. But once I started to follow uh, the 25,000 ers into the countryside, it became interested um, in uh, collectivization and what was going on in the countryside. Um, so I spent most of my career uh, in the village, so to speak. Um, but more recently, I've become interested uh, in violence, something that's always been a part of my study. But it really pushed me to advance into the the, uh, later 1930s and the mass operations.
0: To take up collectivization in in the, you know, late 70s and early 80s, uh, in this period of an intense debate in Soviet historiography about, you know, you know regime support. Uh, looking at social history, worrying about workers and peasants. Um, how was how did you approach this this big issue of collectivization? Particularly since you know the main uh, you know the main historiographical look at it was you know, this is coming from this is all Stalin. In some cases, it's kind of a form of genocide. This is emblematic of the totalitarian regime. So how did you uh, approach this topic? And, and how did it send you in a different direction?
1: Uh, well, to start with, you know, I was interested in the social base of Stalinism. Uh, and this was, you know, the influence of Sheila Fitzpatrick. But I think you know, other people in other areas like German history didn't find the question quite as surprising as some of my colleagues did, um, so it seemed quite logical to me actually to look at this question of, of social base, uh, but in terms of collectivization, um, once I, I moved on to resistance, which actually happened pretty much simultaneously with the study of the 25,000ers, although although it's often, you know, been, I've often been said to have moved from one topic to another. But my first article, Bobby Ubuntu, uh, was in 1986, so very close to while I was writing the book on the 25,000ers. But I guess the thing with collectivization is I brought a social historian's perspective. So as much as politics never leave uh, my work, and I was interested in the role of Stalin, the role of the state, I was equally interested in trying to get at the question of peasant responses to collectivization. And that's why I used this uh, umbrella um, of resistance to begin my study um, and to try and present voices from the countryside um, and to weave together some kind of a narrative based on those
0: voices. One of the the big questions, I think, you know, historians are still, maybe to some extent still struggling, or you can correct me if this question has been solved, but why did the Soviet government decide to collectivize agriculture in the early 1930s?
1: Well, it's a good question. Um, I can't say that it's been solved. I'm sure every generation will have different answers, Um, but I think there are a variety of reasons. And I think it's important uh, that we accept that this is a multi-causal explanation. it's too simplistic to simply say it was a struggle for grain, although it was a struggle for grain, uh, but it was more than that because the state at this point was, in a way, to use terminology from the period, bringing the October Revolution to the countryside, and by that uh, they meant they were basically re-engineering the countryside, so we see not only the struggle for grain, but the struggle for a kind of cultural hegemony. Um, So new Soviet institutions come to replace traditional peasant communal organizations. We see the silencing of potential opposition through the destruction of traditional elites, Um, and we see the creation of an enormous workforce for the gulag. now, ideology, of course, has to be brought in to the subject because the way in which collectivization occurred, particularly in terms of so-called class struggle, um, really colored the whole operation and you can't understand collectivization without so-called dekulakization. Um, so ideology is important and then certainly Stalin is, is, is important. Um, You know, Stalin is the central actor in the decision to go ahead with collectivization um, in November and December, and he is the central actor in terms of revising the final uh, decree on wholesale or splosh collectivization.
0: Was there, I mean, one of the, the, just to give a couple of standard explanations that that I know of, is one is there is indeed a grain crisis um, in the late 20s, and one of the models in which they take on is this is so-called uh, Euro-Siberian method, where they just start you know, resorting back to civil war practices of taking grain, right, and fulfilling quotas. And then, so there's a grain crisis, and then there is also, uh, some historians have suggested too, there's a war scare in 27, and this prompts the government to be, begin being really concerned about attitudes in the countryside, but also if there is a war to break out, how will they actually feed the military? Um, there is a lot of grumbling in cities, uh, of the high prices of grain. Um, and there's a growing sense that the, the net model, um, is, is coming to its end. Um, and, and then there's, of course, the idea that they are going to extract grain from the countryside. Um, and in order to, uh, export it in to fund industrialization. Um, so do you, do you see all of these kind of, external and internal factors also playing into the decision as to why they did it at that, that moment as opposed to earlier or even later in the 30s?
1: I think so. I mean, I think the war scare was pivotal because it was used to convince um, sectors, particularly in, in urban society, uh, that collectivization was the solution to problems, whether it was problems of food, or problems with um, getting grain to pay for uh, exports and therefore hard currency for defense. Um, And uh, there's no question that uh, the distribution network, the ability for the state to get grain seemed to break down in the late 20s. Um, Collectivization presented itself as a solution to many problems, but uh, in terms of grain, it became a control mechanism. The collective form was a control mechanism. Uh, it was much easier for the state to deal with some 200,000 collective farms eventually, uh, as opposed to millions of, of peasant households.
0: The other issue too that I, I see, and in, in, in not just in your work, but also in others who have addressed the issue, it seems that I get the impression and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the idea to collectivize almost developed after the fact and the sense of the the initial thrust was to take grain and then the the need to collectivize was I don't want to say devised but certainly implemented after the fact is 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 this the case and is this the case? How do you understand that in terms of like say Stalinist decision making?
1: Well, I think there's little doubt that um, there were a whole lot of assumptions about how to collectivize, about collectivization. Um, But overall, I think Stalinism is reactive. And so once they decided to take the grain, and Stalin basically removed any kind of moderation. then they had to figure out how to do it, whether it was getting people out to the countryside with specialized knowledge um, or whether it was actually you know, moving the so-called class enemies out of the village. Um, we know that, that the uh, directives on what to do with the so-called kulaks are really only being developed in February 1930 um, in a commission led by Molotov But by this time, people have already been dekulakized. People are already on the trains heading out. So I think it's important to sort of match these ideas and assumptions about collectivization uh, with what became a very reactive Stalinism. Um, It was sort of like make a big push and then start to build.
0: Yeah, and that that's that's I think a really interesting key moment too. So your first book, Best Sons of the Fatherland, um, put forward, you know, a couple of main findings. One is the integral role of workers as participants uh in the process of collectivization and, and them as a possible basis support for that drive and for the Stalinist government more generally. And then the other thing which is really incredibly striking in in this book is the and, and mind you, you, you wrote this book without the use of archive material for the most part, is this the sheer lack of central control in terms of how collectivization is carried out. So what did the process of collectivis- collectivization look like on the ground?
1: Well, first of all, you know, let's, let's remind your listeners that the Soviet countryside uh, was undergoverned at the best of times. Um, and we're talking about a huge expanse of geography. Here. Um, so, you know, one couldn't expect that plans would simply be laid and then implemented. Um, what we have when collect- wholesale collectivization begins in the winter of 1929, 1930, was mostly a race for percentages among various uh, party and Soviet committees, um, and the creation, and that may be the wrong word, but the creation of paper collectives. In other words, a collective form in this early period uh, was mainly a charter with X's or signatures. Um, Sometimes uh, that was accompanied uh, by mass meetings when the 25,000ers arrived, for example, they often claimed that they'd have a series of meetings and this was the ideal scenario. You wanted to meet with women to sort of head off the opposition. Uh, you wanted to meet with comsumals and other activists, if they existed, to try and get some support. Um, so it became a time of many, many meetings. Uh, there was also a cultural war going on. So there were attacks on the church. Um, and this played a role into peasant resistance at the time. Um, at times in this early stage, animals, work animals were socialized. Um, and quite often, uh, village elites were taken out, the so-called kulaks. And as Misha Levine argued, this was a warning to the majority of peasants, you could also be a kulak. Um, but I think it would take the better part of a decade to actually establish collective farms. Um, as late as 1938 or 39, if I remember, there was an article in Sovetskaya Justizia. this is a, a legal journal, Referring to the failure to eliminate strip farming within collective farms, Um, so this is a process. It um, it occurs more quickly in the main grain producing areas, but it takes a very long time elsewhere.
0: And I think it's also important to to point out too is that the sheer infrastructure necessary to collectivize uh, just isn't present. I mean, like you know, a simple issue is like if you have a village. And you know, some of the families own cows. You have to collectivize those cows. You actually have, a, have to have a central place to house them. But that a large barn or a large facility doesn't exist in these villages. That's
1: right. And the solution then was to collectivize or socialize the animals, and then return them to their owners. Other in other cases, animals were pulled together somehow or another, and it could be a disaster. Um, if they were say left in in some sort of central place without the prerequisite enclosures and care
0: another thing that as you said is already present in in best sons of the fatherland but is really developed in your next couple of books uh, peasant rebels under stalin and then the document collection of war against the peasantry and this really illuminated the level of violence uh, and re- peasant resistance to collectivization. I mean, on the one hand, you have these, uh, you know, workers and others and Komsomol members going out to the countryside, closing down churches, ransacking peasants' homes, beating up people, and then peasants really organizing um, in some forms of either passive resistance or incredibly active resistance, where you actually, you know, ha- really have um, a-, a civil war going on in the countryside during the years of collectivization. So taking up this this idea of collectivization as a civil war, how do you understand this resistance and the violence that goes along with it?
1: Well, I think, you know, I I see this this process as a war of cultures. Um, Peasant culture was in many ways antithetical to the secular uh, socialist state. Um, And so part of this war was aimed at eliminating peasant self-government, cultural autonomy, traditional elites. Um, It was also an attempt, as I said at the time, to bring the countryside to socialism, but this all required a fight. And the fact that it wasn't, and I'll I'll use this reservedly, simply a matter of taking grain, but also war on the church, a war on tradition. meant that it was a much larger struggle. And I think it it was these other aspects, as much as socialization of property, socialization of of livestock, that brought people out uh, to resist. Um, And the fact that that they were targeting issues that were central to women, peasant women, uh, made peasant women really the main actors in this resistance. you know, if if you threaten to socialize uh, uh, a cow, a dairy cow um, that someone has in their household, then you're threatening uh, the food reserves of the household. Um, likewise, if you're you're socializing the chickens, as they did sometimes, or you're socializing um, plots of of uh, household farming. Um, this is a threat to the livelihood, particularly of the women's economy. So women had a real stake in the game. Uh, and in certain cases when, when this sort of cultural war became even more radical, uh, when there were threats about the so-called common blanket and the rumors uh, spread through the countryside, uh, then there were still other issues that, that concerned women around uh, morality and how they would live.
0: Yeah, and and that's a, one of the you know one of the other um, issues that you're well known for illuminating too is the religious undertones in the sense of there is a, a general through rumors and belief uh, a general sense that a, an a, an apocalypse is coming, um, and so does how much does does that religious belief and say the the belief that a, a apocalypse is is descending upon the village also galvanizing resistance?
1: Well, it plays a role now. Whether people believed or not is another question. And who believed? Um, you know, there may have been some who simply used these messages. Um, at other times, though, it strikes me that people did believe. And this was a terrible danger to them. Uh, the other aspect of the Civil War, going back to that topic, I should say, was deKulakization, which, in fact, you know, included so-called kulaks. But really, this was uh, a war against traditional elites. And so all sorts of former people, the so-called Bwiv Shielundi, got caught up, as well as, in some cases, the rural intelligentsia, teachers, vets, agronomists, uh, people connected to the church, whether church councils or priests. Um, So there was this, this attempt to, in a sense, decapitate the leadership of the village.
0: That, that speaks to another, uh, before getting onto the, the campaign to liquidate the Kulak as a class, you also get this other response, which is in order to not be pinned as a Kulak, peasants begin slaughtering their livestock, which is a, a major blow to the intentions of the regime to kind of take control of these resources.
1: Yes, it is. And, you know, I think um, it's important to keep in mind that they're not only slaughtering the livestock; they're selling it as well when they can. So you can see that market prices fall very significantly in 1930 uh, for horses, for cows, because they're getting rid of these animals. Um, and um, it, you know what? What I try to do is show that this is not simply this irrational slaughter of animals, with everyone eating the meat, and then you know. Um, just being it uh, for weeks, um, that this is in fact a tactic, it's a reasonable tactic to try and get rid of these animals, and it's not simply by eating them.
0: Now, your next book um, really focused on this issue of the of de-kulakization, uh, the book The Unknown Gulag, where you focused on this operation of liquidating the gulag as a class which resulted in the deportations of millions of peasants and others, many, many, many others, as you point out, to special settlements in Central Asia. So talk about this experience of deportation and life on these settlements.
1: Sure. Well, some went to Central Asia, but most actually went to Urals and Siberia. And in the context of 1930, the European North uh, took the greatest number of families. Well, it's important to to keep in mind that we're talking about the deportation of entire families, and this included infants, it included very elderly people, Um, and some of them would eventually be sent home because the situation was so disastrous. But as I said earlier, the policy on decoulocalization and the special settlements, was literally being developed on the fly, as they always said, um, as these people were already on trains. And um, they were being sent to towns and cities in the regions of exile. And once they got there, then they had to figure out how they're going to house them. And so they used all sorts of closed down churches and monasteries. Uh, In one case, they, opened up a a cinema uh, to to put uh, these families in. Um, And it was quite terrible because they simply weren't prepared to be able to feed these people, to be able to provide clean water. Um, And so epidemics uh, quickly uh, began in the spring of 1930. In the meantime, in certain areas, Uh, able-bodied people were sent ahead into the interior uh, to begin to build special settlements. Um, And it's important to keep in mind that these were basically people were sent to pencil points on a map. Um, These weren't areas that had already been settled so quite often the first task was simply to clear the land, clear the trees. Um, And so the mortality was very, very high in this period. Um, And because these people had been de-Kulakized, and despite being officially allowed to take a certain amount of property and tools, um, they were often fleeced at some point on the road, and many showed up without anything. So the state, ironically, will have to end up paying more to settle the kulaks than than the amount of, of funds they received. From deculicization, which was supposed to go into the collective farms, um, and so it took a long time for these settlements to get set up. Um, they were supposed to be all ready, of course, by June 1930, and that was a Stalinist tendency to, to give an early date. Um, they weren't ready even in September, and they took a long time uh, to build. Um, then. They were supposed to be uh, self-supporting so that the state wouldn't have to pay anything. So people were expected to work in agriculture on the side. Um, And that could be very difficult because there hadn't been any soil surveys done. People were, were dropped basically in areas where you simply couldn't plant. Um, And so after a couple of years, some villages were moved, some were merged. Many were just about deserted because uh, flight was massive from these places.
0: This is what I I wanted to ask is, is, you know, you basically ship these people out uh, and drop them somewhere. How does the regime even... Control like the the categorize the population and monitor the population from basically just moving somewhere else or fleeing, as you say. Uh, I mean, were was the regime able to even like keep track of how many people they were sending and what happened to them after? Um,
1: I I want to say yes and no. <laughs> in In other words, um, once they send people out. Every family had two documents that they filled out, and, and one uh, was kept on site, and the other was brought with them to the new region. So in theory, there, there was tracking of some kind. Um, now, in terms of control of the special settlements, um, there were uh, commandanti who were appointed commandants. Uh, who were who had supervisory power over the villages. Uh, but not every village had a commandant. A commandant could serve several villages. So they had to set up a system eventually of some kind of self-government. Um, and, uh, and you know that that I think could only go so far um, because most people weren't were willing to to report on their neighbors. Um, so you know in fact there's not a lot of control. Or I should say it's it's a similar kind of control that you have in collectivization. Uh, when they really needed something, they had to go to the rayon the district, and send people out from there.
0: This is something I just thought of, so I don't know if you can actually you have an answer for it. But, you know, you have um, in Russia uh, a memory of the terror, right? You have efforts by organizations like Memorial to really categorize and in and remember and commemorate victims of the terror in thirty-seven, thirty-eight. You have a memory project, say, in Ukraine around the famine uh, and in other places of disaster that are, you know, famine that are related to collectivization. Is there a, a, an attempt to memorialize in, in, in memory of collectivization?
1: You know, when I first started this project, I remember reading Solzhenitsyn who said, you know, peasants are a silent people they don't leave behind documents in the same way, uh, ego documents. But what I found is that um, from 1991, if not a little bit earlier, uh, people started to write about their experiences. And in some cases, these were people who had been de eyes. In other cases, it was their children who went with them. Um, many of the children ended up educated, they were educated uh, in order to serve the special villages, but in most cases they stayed in cities, never went back. Um, And so in a way they were no longer peasants and and these were the main people who wrote about the experience. Um, And there's a massive amount of memoir material as well as peasant letters um, written during this period. If you look at um, memorial uh, publications Um, For example, um, a number of people began to write in, mostly because they wanted to find out about pensions and whether or not uh, they would be eligible, but in doing so they told their stories. So, in fact, there's quite a bit. Um, More recently there have been times when high school students uh, have been invited to write about collectivization, so there's a whole volume of uh, essays by these students who talked to their family and you know tried to describe what collectivization was
0: like. Wow, oh, I didn't know that. This is, this is why I asked because you know we hear so much about you know uh, either the general rubric of of memorializing the victims of Stalin's repression or the terror in particular, but it seems that um collectivization uh it's not so much on the surface as these other forms of oppression well,
1: you know there may be more out there now because i i haven't been working on this lately um but i think by and large we knew we knew a bit more about the terror because people who many of the people um who were, were victims, um, and this is what we assumed, that they were all elite victims, which they weren't, but many of these people wrote, and they wrote from the Khrushchev period onwards, um, publishing either in Samizdat or in Tamizdat, um, and in some cases, um, you know, actually publishing in, in the Soviet Union in the 50s and early 60s. Um, so there was a lot more information about the terror, um, and I should also add, you know, there is an urban bias in our work. There's an urban bias throughout the Western historiography. Um, so people weren't very interested in peasants. Um, you know, they they were much more interested in intellectuals and in workers um, and other categories.
0: No, you were uh, one of the the co- you were in a cohort of some of the first historians uh, and social historians in particular that. Got to delve into the Soviet archives after 1991, um, and and this not only influenced your your books after *Best Sons of the Fatherland*, but also it allowed you to uh, work with research teams both in the United States, Canada, and Russia to produce you know uh, you know vol- massive volumes of just archival documents on collectivization, and also most recently you're doing this with NKVD documents uh, relating to the terror. So talk about this experience of being able to get access to these materials. And also, you know, what kind of information do they tell us when you look at these documents? What did they reveal?
1: Well, uh, the tragedy of the Soviet countryside, Saragedia Sovietica Derevnya was the first big project I, I worked on. And Viktor Petrovich Danilov was the main force in that project. Um, He never thought it would get off the ground, uh, but we were very lucky with, with financing. Um, and so, um, what we did was we had access to all the central archives in Moscow and that included the FSB or former KGB archives. Um, we weren't allowed to actually sit there and work only Danilov was, but he was allowed to bring out Xeroxes. Um, and as, as you know, there's a lot of, of um, documents from that archive that that came into that 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 project. Um, I often like to say that that this was my second PhD, um, that I really learned how to work with documents, um, how to work with different kinds of documents, um, how the archive how to how to figure out how the archives were organized. Um, came with this project. Um, We had a vast overview looking at any institution that had any role. Um, So it allowed me to see the interconnectivity of these various institutions in the implementation of collectivization. Um, Now, my current project, uh, which will eventually uh, have four volumes of documents, the first volume is already out, is based on documents from the SBU, former KGB archives in Ukraine. And uh, that archive is is pretty open. Um, And I can say that, you know, what we've been working on has been looking at perpetrators. And we decided that the best way to look at these perpetrators was to look at criminal cases against perpetrators who were arrested after the great terror and charged with so-called violations uh, of socialist legality. Now we know that the real person who was responsible was Stalin, so he needed scapegoats, uh, and this purging of the NKVD, you know, went on all through the Great Terror. But it's this last generation uh, in Ukraine, mostly Uspensky people, uh, who were caught up in this scapegoating, and so. They left massive criminal files, um, which have all sorts of documents. Um, They are in the thousands of pages. And what this showed me working on this project is that there is so much material out there that we could begin to look at the terror uh, in different regions, in different places. Uh, The kind of studies of the French Revolution that occurred by region, we could do this for the terror. Um, And so what does this mean? Well, it means that we only have the tip of the iceberg in documents, assuming, assuming documents were not destroyed in Moscow. And without access to the archive in Moscow, I think we're always going to have an incomplete picture, particularly if you're someone like me who likes the nuts and bolts of history, how things were done, how things were implemented. Um, Also, in using these more recent archives in Kiev, uh, you get to see, you get to take a look back at 1937 and 38 and see what actually was going on. Um, All the documentation that I've looked at on 37 and 38 is quite Um, black and white. Uh, It's it's not convincing for its authenticity. Uh, But you start to see by looking at the perpetrators, um, you know, why this was the case. And it was because they were falsifying, uh, they were using torture to force people to sign false statements. um, And they were also sending so many people through this process that as one perpetrator said, you know, I had no choice. If they wanted 100 confessions a night, I had to beat people. Um, and so there was something very situational about the violence as, as well. But we can only see this, you know, through these, through these documents. So it's not simply a look at perpetrators, it's a look at the bigger picture uh, behind what's going on. Um, and so, in terms of the bigger picture, we start to see that in fact, there were very public aspects to the Great Terror, uh, you know, both in terms of the way the NKVD caroused at night in parties, uh, the way in which the clothing of murdered people showed up at peasant markets. Um, we see the chaotic state of the NKVD, the constant transfers. One NKVD guy said, you know, it was worse than serfdom. Um, and they, in fact, felt like they were victims as well. The irony of it all. Um, so, um, so I think it's really important. Now, going back to Viktor Petrovich Danilov, I remember in the mid 1990s, he said to me, you know, we need to publish these documents and get them in the public domain. And I thought in the 90s, well, really, but things have changed. <laughs> well, you know, we understand now the importance of his message to get these material out. And, and you know, I've used that same sort of philosophy working in Kiev.
0: Yeah, no, that's true, because, you know, there has, after that initial flood of openness, uh, there's been, you know, some curtailing of access to to a lot of these materials. I mean, there are still more materials uh, accessible than I think any historians will ever be able to consume. But nonetheless, we're still, you know, historians are still prevented from going deeper in certain ways because of, you know, established restrictions on, on access.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Um, I want to ask you a bit more about this issue of, of perpetrators because I mean, really, in kind of thinking about your books as, as an entire work, um, in preparation for these questions, I, I kind of noticed you're to the direction of your research, the, the dynamic between perpetrators and victims slash resistors that was was there really in the beginning. Um, but but nonetheless, you, you've kind of more swayed like, you know, best sons of the fatherland is from the eyes of the perpetrator uh your subsequent books on resistance and the unknown, unknown gulag is through the eyes of the the victims or the the people resisting and now you've swung back to looking at uh perpetrators in your new book uh, stalinist perpetrators on trial so what is this dynamic and then some people you could say about the terror what's what's interesting about it is that and, and maybe in some respects about collectivization too is that today's perpetrator is a victim and vice versa right um it's a real carnivalesque form of violence but what does this dynamic between these perpetrators and victims and resistors say about uh, violence and so the soviet 1930s
1: well first of all i think you know it's important not to accept simplistic binaries of victims versus perpetrators or resistance versus social support um, it was clear to me fairly early on that there was a large spectrum of social responses. And so after I did the 25,000ers and looked at participants uh, in the violence, I wanted to see what the response was. And that's when I looked at resistance. Um, Then I wanted to look more closely at victims. Uh, But what I was doing through this is sort of using the same kind of topic but turning around different angles to get different pictures. Um, and I think it's very important to keep in mind that there was this spectrum of societal responses. I remember someone saying to me critically, you know, first you look at at, at social support, now you're looking at resistance. Isn't this opportunistic? Um, I don't think so. You know, as I said, I was looking at resistance already in 1986. Uh, a year before my first book was published. Um, I'm rather more interested in looking at this range of responses. Uh, And the perpetrators represent yet another kind of response. Why and how did they fulfill the directives coming from below? Um, Now, in terms of perpetrators as victims, uh, in my last book, I make a very uh, clear point of saying they're not victims in the traditional sense of the word victims. Um, I know there's a huge gray area, particularly once we get into the gulag, um, as you know some perpetrators become victims there and other victims have staff jobs, and whatnot, you could say they become part of the system. Um, but I think the, the NKVD people who were arrested, um, I have a lot of trouble calling them victims using that word.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, what does you know? At it, it, thinking about your first book and then thinking about your more recent work, you know, in like I said earlier, and you you illuminated in their first book by looking at this t- these twenty five thousanders who are carrying out the participants in carrying out collectivization. You really get a, to look at just how completely chaotic and crazy it is. Um, in terms of the perpetrators during the terror, these NKVD age officers. Uh, What does the the terror look like from their eyes?
1: Well, it's a good question. Um, And I can say that, you know, first of all, uh, looking at the terror from the perpetrator's eyes, um, there were a lot of crocodile tears. Um, They all complained that they worked constantly. They worked all night, and they did. They complained that their housing was poor. Many of them had, are, were being moved around from one place to the next. So that was true. Sometimes they had to stay in hotels. Uh, they complained that there were lines at the cafeteria. Uh, so you know the question of let us say everyday life or wheat for the NKVD during this time uh, comes out uh, as you read these various sources, including NKVD party meetings. Um, but we also see how they justify practices such as stealing clothes and money from from, um, corpses. Uh, You know, they basically argue, well, this is hard work and we deserve something out of this. Uh, Same for getting drunk on the very floor uh, on which people were shot. Uh, You know, this is very hard work. We, we, this is justified Uh, quite often they uh, justify the use of torture by their workload. How do you get these many people through the system without forcing them to sign? Which raises the question of why did everyone have to sign? You know, It becomes a kind of paper bureaucratic nightmare. And, and that was a huge problem because there, there were way too many people who came in um, leading to you know, horrors in prison cells. Um, when people literally suffocated to death because there was not enough air, because it was hot, and so on and so forth. Um, so when you look at the terror through the, through their eyes, um, you know you see all of these kinds of practical problems of implementation. At the same time, you know they believed in what they were doing.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, if can you get a sense of what they. Th- Understood what they were doing? Did they believe in what they were doing? Or or, go ahead?
1: I'm sure there's a range of of responses. Um, You know, several several defendants in Zaporizhia said basically, I could not not believe in the orders that were coming to me from Uspensky, head of the Ukrainian NKVD, or Yezhov. Um, I could not not believe. Um, Also. You know, there are others who truly believe they're enemies um, or some who said, well, you know, I really thought these were enemies, but that group, you know, I didn't believe Um, there were people who were cynical. There were people who were in shock. Um, I I don't know how shocked, but, uh, for example, the head of the Uman NKVD said he was shocked at, at the the new dynamics uh, of 1937 and the widespread uh, torture and and the volume of arrests, um, but I think you know most people believed, and consequently, when they had trials, um, they refused to admit guilt.
0: Yeah, this, I'm always struck. I'm always I always remember this last statement of Vizhov, where he basically he says the you know pretty much what he says. The only thing I'm guilty of is not shooting more people.
1: Right, right. Well, I mean Gra- Grabar, who worked in the uh, uh Republic-level Ukraine, NKVD, said, you know, if only I had had beaten my subordinates a little bit more, they would have been tougher, and this wouldn't have happened. So, you know, go figure.
0: Yeah, I know. It's it's an incredibly gruesome history. So do you see yourself, I mean, you know, one of the, the pivotal books in terms of this from say, the Nazi uh, angle is is Christopher Browning's Ordinary Men, where he looks at, you know, the 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 SS in in the killing fields in in Eastern Europe, um and and he really does illuminate the you know, I mean I hate to call it the difficulty of the job too, but it, he really shows the re, the the impact on these people. Do you in terms of their psychology, in terms of their their physical physicality, how did they deal with with the acts that they're committing? Do you get a a, a sense of um the types of people? these perpetrators were in terms of their mentality?
1: Well, you know, I think probably the truly pathological among them were rare. So we're not talking about pathological people. At the same time, I have some trouble with this notion of ordinary people, uh, ordinary men. Um, You know, when you bring ideology into the mix, I think they cease to be ordinary in some ways. but in terms of, of Soviet perpetrators, the NKVD people I look at, um, these were people who were in a military type organization and they followed orders. Um, and they always said, you know, we were following orders. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't think this question of whether they're ordinary or not really plays much of a role. They were ideolo- ideologized, they were part of an institution that had its own culture. Um, but I think where, where Browning is very interesting is, is when he looks at the situational aspects uh, that, that enabled uh, and shaped uh, what these people did. And in that sense, there are a lot of commonalities, not just with the Nazis, but with, let's say, you know the US and the Phoenix program during the Vietnam War, um, and other other types of terror, where you have these situations where you need people to confess uh, and you need to present the story to them. Um, and it often results in the use of force, the use of of, of repression, and that is situational. Um, I only take that so far though, because, you know, I think these people have to uh, be held responsible and and, and I'm, I'm not saying let's have, have, have a, a trial um, that's completely unpractical uh, and would not do anything. Most of them are, are long gone. Um, but I think that there was a kind of con- con- constrained agency. Um, that these people were able to make use of. Um, and you see it as they deviate from directives or they interpret these directives creatively, which in most cases means extreme violence.
0: One of the things like, I, here I'm thinking of uh, Wendy Goldman's two books on the terror, Terror in the Factories and then her, her Intimate Enemies book, which you know one could say provides a different image of the perpetrator. And that is the participation of you know, pretty much average citizens, neighbors uh, in denunciation and and having, you know, people they know arrested or people who they work with. Um, Do you get a sense of, uh, from looking at the NKVD, these NKVD guys, do you get any indication of how they understood that other aspect of how the public was participating in responding to this violence?
1: Well, I, I should say, first, there's a wide range of actors that are, that are complicit, and there's, there's no question about this. Um, whether we're looking at, at doctors or lawyers or party members or NKVD members, um, or we're looking at, at the auxiliaries that the NKVD needed in order to, to shoot, basically. Um, so all sorts of NKVD couriers, chauffeurs, and others are dragged into this. Uh, firemen postal workers get involved, are forced to get involved because of the sheer numbers, um, as is the the militia, the the regular police. Um, Through my work, I haven't had a chance to see average people, um, say in the factories, um, except in in the role that they're resisting, uh, not not so much resisting as as, um, victimized by all of this. For example, there was a real push to purge the factories of so-called national enemies uh, by July 1938. Um, And that led to a massive amount of violence uh, against factory workers. Um, And so what I see is pushback, people trying to either hide certain kinds of of, um, biographical data of people who were supposed to be arrested or people literally complaining. Um, the head of one factory went directly to Khrushchev to complain. Um, so I see that side of the picture. I have no doubt that there is social participation, but it hasn't been uh, what I have looked at uh, for, for the most part.
0: Um, now, one of the features of of both of these Mass processes of violence, collectivization, and the terror. One of the things that's clear, and and really, I think, shows the the how the role of Stalin is so integral, and that is when he, uh you know, gives his dizziness with success article, and when he basically stops the terror and, and initiates a purge of the purgers. You know, he it shows that when it comes down to it, he could either stop or start or stop this process. Um, so why does, in both of these instances where he intervenes to put an end to the process, what is the reasoning for stopping it?
1: Um, well, I mean, first let me say that in both cases, both with, um, collectivization and the terror, um, you can, you can also see Stalin's intervention as the last stage in a process. Um, in other words, um, there are constant warnings and attempts to regulate, and you know we may not take these uh, as sincere expressions, but nonetheless, um, you know you can see a crescendo, both in collectivization, which is very short term, but also from January 1938. So one could say that um, you know this is the last, this is the last straw. Um, on the other hand, I think Stalin's interventions in both cases are very strategic because he's achieved what he wanted to achieve. There's been a breakthrough, uh, whether in you know, sort of breaking the countryside um, or you know, purging these categories. Um, and so now it's time to sort of deal with the aftermath. And in both cases, the aftermath was messy in terms of people who were hurt, Um, both inside and outside collective farm or or the prison. And so that's when he searches for scapegoats, um, as well as in the case of the terror, basically reorganizing the NKVD. And
0: and finally, um, how do you understand Stalinism today after some of your more recent work, particularly after the archives opened, uh, compared to when you wrote The Best Sons of the Fatherland?
1: Well, I continue to believe that there was a social base for Stalinism, um, but I should say that already at that time, I knew that there was resistance. Um, I always felt like we didn't have a realistic picture of what was going on, that our picture was always you know, the view from the Kremlin wall. So that we didn't have a sense of, say, the kind of work that Getty did on the periphery. Uh, what happened to policy once it left Moscow. And that has always been interesting to me, Um, as well as the complexities uh, of the social history of Stalin, of the Stalin period, the range of responses. Um, I also must say, I continue to regret the urban bias in our historiography. Our, Our colleagues have made, you know, uh, overarching conclusions based mostly on three to 10% of the population. Um, which of course is better than simply, you know, Stalin because that's less than, than 1.1%. Um, but I think understanding the countryside and particularly what Stanislav Kalivis has called rurality is important to understanding violence in the countryside, in the village, both during collectivization, but also the mass operations. Uh, And that's where we're just getting started. Um, Also, rurality is central to understanding the violence of the war, of World War II, both in terms of how the war was waged and defended, but also in terms of collaboration.
0: Well, Lynn, thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome, Sean.
0: That was Lynn Viola. Professor of History at the University of Toronto, specializing in the political and social history of 20th century Russia. Her books include The Best Sons of the Fatherland, Workers in the Vanguard of Soviet Collectivization, Peasant Rebels Under Stalin, Collectivization and the Culture of Peasant Resistance, The War Against the Peasantry, 1927-1930, and The Unknown Gulag, The Lost World of Stalin's Special Settlements, among other edited volumes, document collections, and articles. Her most recent book is Stalinist Perpetrators on Trial, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gildry and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at Sean'sRussiaBlog.org. Thanks to all my High Excellencies, High Wellborns, and Noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from Sean's Russia blog.org as well. Until next time, bye.